listening to My Morning Cup, a podcast that features interesting conversations with genuine people. I'm your host, Mike Costa of Costa Media Advisors. My guest this week is Mickey McCamish. Mickey is a retired U.S. Navy captain, a former golf industry executive in Myrtle Beach, and he is currently president and CEO for Friends of the Festival, the folks who put on Riverbend. Mickey, welcome to My Morning Cup. Before we talk about how you went from driving Navy destroyers to driving golf balls to bringing music to the Chattanooga waterfront, let me ask, what's in your morning cup? Honestly, uh, I'm drinking coffee. Good black coffee. Then we had this conversation a little bit earlier. Tell about the first time you ever tried coffee. Sure. I was a Navy ensign in the um, Tokyo Bay, Bay of Tokyo, and we were doing a gunnery exercise. I was a gunnery officer. It was an open bridge destroyer. Snow was going sideways. Oh, that sounds miserable. (laughs) It was very cold, extremely cold. So I asked uh, for a cup of uh, something warm. And just said, give me anything warm. And they said, coffee. I said, if it's warm, I want it. (laughs) And they asked if you want anything in it. I said, I want anything in it at this point because I'm so cold. And that's when when I had my first cup of coffee. So you got hooked on black coffee. I got hooked on black coffee, and it's been um, one or two cups uh, each morning, start each day. How is that Navy coffee, by the way? (laughs) I know you hear uh, reports of it being thick as mud, but— yeah. It's always uh, acceptable to me. Of course, you know, I just never had any real taste other than my first cup. And uh, I guess everything tastes pretty good <laughs> after, <laughs> after, that. after that, after that cup and all. And whenever it, it served its purpose, its purpose was to. It warmed you up. Yeah, especially as we were firing the five inch mounts. Oh, and I want to talk about your Navy career, but you grew up here in Chattanooga, right? I did, Mike. Uh, we grew up, my brother, my sister, and I, we grew up in very simple means in East Chattanooga and went to East Chattanooga Elementary School, went to Hardy Junior High School, and then on Chattanooga High School. There's a few uh, famous alumni from there. What Didn't Bob Corker go there? He did. He was a couple of years behind me. And, you know, uh, it, was, it was a great school. I really enjoyed school and being a part and and I tried to uh, use the education that I was exposed to there throughout my life because it opens so many doors for you when you do take advantage of the education opportunity. Did you go directly into the Navy from high school? No, I went to um, went to the University of Chattanooga. Okay. I worked part-time in the mailroom at Pioneer Bank because, again, we were a very simple means, and my parents did not have the funds to uh, put me through college. So you worked your way through. I worked my way through. I took classes in the morning hours, finished before one, and then would go and work for uh, four hours in the mailroom of Pioneer Bank. And so my job was to go around and pick up all the mail, process all the mail in a, a Pitney Bowles machine that I remember very well, and then to uh, carry it to the post office for it to be mailed out. I also carried the day's works of checks that had been processed over to then Hamilton National Bank, which is now uh, First Horizon, but would take it over because that was the processing center for all the checks in the Chattanooga area. And the paperwork volume was much larger than I'm sure. Oh, it was all paperwork, 
statements were all paper. Uh, ledger sheets of accounts were all paper. Everything was paper. There was very little computers that were in use. And you were going to University of Chattanooga at the time because it hadn't become part of the Tennessee system at that point. That's right. University of Chattanooga was a private school at the time. I don't think a lot of people realize that. I don't think so either, but it was a private school and tuition was pretty expensive. But it had a great reputation just in terms of the education that one would receive from it. I had potential uh, athletic scholarships to Carson Newman. What sport? It's football. And then also to Tennessee Tech. But I uh, chose to stay here in Chattanooga, close to the family, and the fact that UC at that time had such a good reputation, and I'd lined up this uh, job that I felt would put me through school, and it did. All those funds went to uh, pay the tuition and pay the books at UC. And so for me, it was investing those dollars. So I made sure that I worked just a little hard because those were dollars that I was putting into my education. You were vested in it. And I was a part of it. I was financially a part of it. I had, as I say, a lot of skin in this game. Did your parents push education in terms of you really need to educate yourself? They did. Uh, My mother in particular was strongly uh, supportive, even though they were not a financial means to be able to do that. She strongly supported it and was really, really encouraging to all of us, to my brother and my sister and I. What were you studying at Chattanooga State? At the University of Chattanooga, I studied business. University of Chattanooga, I'm sorry. Business and economics and with courses in accounting, but I also took science courses as electives. I took quantitative, qualitative analysis, uh, physics. I took as, um, as electives because I wasn't for sure exactly what career path I might take And I wanted to have the flexibility, if I wanted to go toward a medical career with pharmacy, that it would give me that option to do that. But I did decide to stay with business. I enjoyed business. I enjoyed the accounting courses. And I enjoyed the economics courses. So I just had a wide range of interest while I was at the university. But I did settle on the College of Business. How'd you end up going into the Navy then? Because you had varied interests, and I learned something. I didn't know you played football and got a football scholarship. What position? I played halfback, and then, of course, we went both ways then. Yeah. I played a cornerback. Oh, wow. So, yeah. good athlete, business major. And ran track and did baseball, and uh, we were all sports interested. But then academics took over, and I focused more on academics. And So, how you end up in the Navy? I was at the University of Chattanooga, as I mentioned, and the uh, Navy recruiters, Air Force, uh, Marines, they all came on campus, and I'd always been interested in flying. I narrowed it down to the Air Force and the Navy. Mm -hmm. When the recruiters came on campus, I then uh, led to me taking the officer candidate exam, and I um, was fortunate. I, I passed both, and so therefore, it led to making a decision between the Air Force or the Navy. The reason I chose the Navy was because I was operationally oriented, and I felt that if I couldn't fly, if I wasn't able to fly, then I could drive ships. Right. And that's why I ended up in the Navy. Whereas with the Air Force, my career options from an operational standpoint, yes, I could fly a plane, but then what would I do if I couldn't fly? Yeah. And I just liked the operational opportunities that the Navy gave me. How did they determine, or how was it determined, whether you were going to fly or not? The real thing for me was the I part. Um, 
mutual friend of ours gave that same answer, Chip Baker. Yeah, <laughs> it, it was eyes. I, I qualified as a navigator. And at that point, we had not lost uh, that many pilots yet in Vietnam. So that corrective vision was not accepted. Even though I had corrected vision that would uh, lead to 2020, did qualify as a navigator, but I did not qualify as a pilot. A navigator wasn't acceptable to me, even though you could earn your wings there. I didn't really want to go that route. I wanted to really be the pilot. I wanted to have a the command of the aircraft. And this was early on with Vietnam, wasn't it? It was. It was. Um, this goes back to 1965. Well, it was just getting started. So you made the choice to join the armed services when we were in a hot war. I did. I, uh, I'd always had a love for country. And I think it was just my generation that that was very prevalent. My father had served in the army. And so I had that background. And I can recall the day when he returned uh, back to Chattanooga from World War II. That always resonated with me of wanting to serve. Yeah. And it was just wanting to serve in a different way. I had uh, just had the interest in flying. So once you found out you weren't going to be flying, did they gear you towards an operational aspect? Like most things in the Navy, whenever you go through any schooling process, it's based upon how you finish in your class. And depending on how you form in that grading system, you complete a dream sheet. My dream sheet was destroyers and then gunnery. I wanted, again, operations was was my thing. And gunnery was my definition of operations, of firing the weapons aboard the ship, firing the missiles aboard the ship. That was my my definition of operations. And my dream sheet was uh, fully uh, completed in that I ended up on a destroyer. I ended up out of uh, Newport, Rhode Island, and I was a gunnery officer on that destroyer. So and I think that's an interesting perspective because you had this dream to fly and you realize you're not going to fly, but you didn't let that discourage you. You adjusted your dream. That's right. And I was a surface warfare officer. That means that I completed the requirements to command a ship at sea, to get a ship underway, to be able to moor a ship, to be able to go in the ports, to be able to command a ship. You told me a story a little while back about the first time you commanded a ship, drove a destroyer. You want to share that again? I had, um, I was very fortunate in the commanding officers that I had, that they gave me the opportunities that they did. And so as a result, I'm really qualified as an officer of the deck, which means the ability to command the ship and get it underway without the captain being on the bridge. I qualified as an ensign. And the reason was was because we were at sea so many days of the year, which was great for me because I got to see a great part of, all over the world. I bet. And the first time that, that I got a destroyer, and a destroyer is a football field in length, so just so you have a feel for the size, uh, length of a destroyer. It's a big ship. It's a very big ship. And um, I was on the Fantail. We were getting underway, getting ready to get underway for South America, and we are going to be gone for seven months. Oh, wow. I am, was back with my um, division, and we were getting underway, and the captain calls for Ensign McCamish to come to the bridge. And that's how I got first got a ship underway. If I'd had time to think about it. <laughs> and how old were you? At that time, 22. You're 22. You don't know he's going to call you out of the blue and say, no. you're driving, champ. <laughs> that's it. 
So you didn't have time to think about it. Training took over. Yeah, that's right. The training uh, dominated. And, you know, with a destroyer, destroyer is so top-heavy. The wind really impacts the direction of a destroyer, and especially as you single up your lines, and uh, you have to really be conscious of the wind direction. So you got to compensate, like if your car's pulling to one side? Well, that's right, and you do it with engines and propellers. You'll go ahead on one and back on the other so that it swings the stern out from the pier so that then you can put it in reverse and uh, back it out. And you were in the Navy 23 years. 27. 27, I'm sorry. 27 years. Um, I was in the, I was moving in the zone for Admiral. If I had been selected uh, just to be in the zone, I felt here was a guy from East Chattanooga, Tennessee, and to be a, a Navy captain and to think that you were in the zone to become a Navy Admiral, it would require an additional five-year commitment. It became then more of a family decision. I mean, 27 years, uh, you've been all over the world. You've had a lot of moves. There's been just a lot of impact on your family. You just, you sit down with the family and you make that decision. What was the biggest lesson or thing you got out of your service with the Navy? Um, For me, it was to uh, give people an opportunity to succeed. If I had not had those opportunities from my Navy destroyer captains, I would not have achieved the level of rank that I achieved. So they gave me those opportunities. They empowered me, and they enabled me because I moved right up through the ranks of increasing responsibility. And as you got into the private sector after the Navy, is that something you took with you in terms of your management style? It is. um, You know, even right now in Riverbend, I have young people working for me. But I empower them. I give them the opportunity to really manage their particular area, and I trust their judgment. And that the same thing, opportunities that were given to me to succeed, I also give them to succeed. But to let them know, yes, I have the overall responsibility, just like the captain of the ship, while he delegated down to me as the officer of the deck status and the command uh, duty officer status. Still, the responsibility lays with the captain, but he trusted me to make sure that while all the crew was asleep at night, that whenever I had the officer of the deck responsibility, that I was not going to lead that uh, ship into an extremist situation that would cause loss of life. And that's such an important factor in helping people grow their careers is to give them that opportunity to succeed and not micromanage them. And they learn more rather than just saying, do this, this, or this. That's exactly right. And I guess the old type of managing was exactly that, Mike. Micromanaging and you, the boss, was always directing. And for me, it gave me the opportunity to succeed in in the Navy. Now, granted, I made mistakes along the way. Oh, yeah, but you learned from them. But I learned from those mistakes. And uh, just as I learned from the young people that are working in our office. Matter of fact, with the the three of the young people in the office, I can add their ages up and they don't equal (laughs) mine. But I learned from them. And it's so refreshing to be around them. And that's what I enjoy so much out of life is it's always learning and mentally it keeps me very, very engaged and keeps me very uh, active, and I look forward to always learning from them. Another important thing is you got to be constantly learning. Otherwise, you get stale and you get bored and not as active as you are. 
Well, that's exactly right. I'm fearful that if I do not follow that path, if I were to, uh, if you would, slack off a little bit or Mm -hmm. not stay as active, that it might not be as healthy for me as it might be for others. And I think all of us have to figure that out of how it prolongs your life. And it does prolong your life. It does. It prolonged my life, even though I was exposed to Agent Orange. I've had three bouts of cancer. Each one of those I've um, been able to overcome. You just say, okay, you treat it like a, my military mission. It, it is to rid my body of the cancer, and I've been successful. Don't let it, whatever the medical solution is, don't let it interfere with your lifestyle, but show that you can beat it. Yeah, take care of your mission. That's exactly right. I want to get to you coming back to Chattanooga and everything you do here. But before I do that, touch on your time at Myrtle Beach. How in the world did you end up in the golf industry in Myrtle Beach? I was exposed to the PGA Tour in Washington in the Northeast. And from that, it led to the opportunity of we're starting a senior tour championship and it's in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and would you have an interest in being a part of that? How long did it take you to say yes? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that entered into the family decision of relocating yeah. uh, versus uh, staying in the zone for Navy Admiral. And it was a great experience working with the tour. Of course, at that time, it was a top 30 uh, on the uh, senior PGA Tour, and that was the Nicholas, the Palmer, the Players, uh, Lee Trevino. Yeah, that was right when they were launching the senior tour. It was. It was the first senior tour championship, first $2 million purse. And Myrtle Beach wanted it. And the reason they wanted it because they were the golf capital yeah. of the world. And they wanted to market Myrtle Beach as the golf capital of the world. What better way to do that than to have the PGA uh, tour in your backyard? Especially those names at that time. That's right. And so worked with ESPN telecast crew. Also, CBS crews, so worked with all of the different television network crews in producing the uh, Senior Tour And how long were you in Myrtle Beach? 16 years. 16 years, and what brought you home? Um, there was a contract with the PGA Tour in a company called Myrtle Beach Golf Holiday. And um, at a point, they did not renew the contract with the tour, but they asked me if I would uh, really continue to work for them. And I moved up to the president of that company, and it was a membership organization. It was basically the Chamber of Commerce of Golf of uh, Myrtle Beach. And you uh, have an annual meeting. So on my 16th year of being totally being in Myrtle Beach, it felt it was time to return home. And been gone for, uh, you know, 43 years. My wife is from Chattanooga. Yes, we came back here and visited. Uh, my brother, my sister, my mother, uh, father were still here. And my um, wife's mother and father had passed away. But my family was still here, and I felt it was time to return. So we returned in uh, April of uh, 2008. But you didn't really return as a retiree, because at this point, you're retired from the Navy. you retired from the Gulf. You, I mean, you hit the ground running, but I think I met you. First through the Chattanooga Classic, maybe, and <laughs> then right. uh, through your time with the Epilepsy Foundation. That's right. That's exactly right. What happened, Mike, was uh, for a person who'd been active all their life, uh, you know, hitting golf balls, walking the dog, vacuuming, I was done by <laughs> six in the morning. My wife had uh, left to go visit her daughter, 
And so I said, I'm tired of this. And so it was that time where in the newspaper they had job wanted postings. And there was a posting for the Epilepsy Foundation. And I said, well, I think I'll just do a resume and mail it in to them. And my mother had had epilepsy. We were familiar with the medical condition. And so I applied and was, um, you know, was then hired as their uh, director. Sometimes you don't realize what you're getting into, but <laughs> but it was um, it was really interesting, and uh, they uh, they had some changes that needed to be made. Fortunately, I sat down with Eva Dillard of United Way at the time and said, "Eva, you don't know who I am, but I'm here to turn this ship around." So we turned it around, and then. At the same token, uh, Chip Baker, mm-hmm. Sam Woolwine. Sam Woolwine was a sports writer for the Chattanooga Times Free Press. Sam um, and Chip had uh, said, hey, we'd like to meet with you. Sam had came over to Myrtle Beach, wrote several Chattanooga uh, news uh, articles on golfing in Myrtle Beach. And then they asked me if I would come and be a part of the executive committee of the Nationwide Tour it was at that time. And I said, well, sure. And that was really how I started to become engaged and uh, – that was like in April or May. Well, come the month of July, Sam decided that he was going to take a different career path. <laughs> and now remember, the October is the uh, tournament month. Yeah. And so they said, well, wow, uh, <laughs> would you step in and be the tournament director? And remember, I'm pretty new to Chattanooga. And I said, but sure. I mean, gosh, obviously with Sam leaving, there was a need there. Yeah. And so having... Worked with the PGA Tour officials. I knew most of them coming in, so I was able to step in and do that. But Chip and I had an agreement where um, Epilepsy Foundation would benefit from the tournament. tournament. Yeah, and so that worked out really, really well. And Epilepsy Foundation, it was a win-win for the Epilepsy Foundation for the Nationwide Tour and stayed on there until we did not renew the uh, agreement with the tour. And one thing I've observed about you, Mickey, since I've known you, is you don't sit still. I mean, you've gotten involved with a lot of things in the city since you've been back, really more than I could name beyond that. But one thing in particular you're heavily involved in is all the veteran activities that you do. Yeah. You know, uh, what happened with the Epilepsy Foundation was traumatic brain injury um, that impacted so many veterans. And it was that Epilepsy could be an outcome of a traumatic brain injury. So therefore, started then the Southeast Tennessee Veterans Coalition. And the idea was initially was to educate families and veterans that, hey, look, you may not be having epilepsy right now, but there's the potential that at some point in your life, you might experience epilepsy. And so that then led to... uh, partnering with the VA in a way that said, okay, VA, you're providing most of the medical ends uh, for veterans, but then there are other needs these veterans have out there that's creating stress in their life that can also accelerate the potential of a a seizure, of epilepsy. Mm -hmm. And so therefore started the uh, Southeast uh, Tennessee Veterans Coalition to partner with the VA so then we're treating the medical end, and then we're treating the non-medical impacts that might have an effect on veterans. And so then you're treating the whole body of the veteran. 
and some examples, and we're still doing this today, uh, meeting monthly, the last Wednesday of each month. And one of the things, for example, is dental care. Most veterans do not receive dental care. You have to have had a facial injury or an injury to the, uh, to the mouth that caused you to receive dental. So there's only, nationally, there's only 8% of veterans receive dental care. That's not part of their benefits for having served no. the country? No, it's not. That's crazy. And so what we've done is we've written grants on this, and we've gotten just under $100,000, and we've reached out to some 40 veterans and have been able to provide dental care, partnering with Revive Clinic, and provide it to over 40 veterans, provide the dental care for them. Wow. It's interesting because most of the veterans have gone without dental care. Extractions are very prevalent, and implants for most veterans. So it's very, uh, very extensive because they just haven't, a lot of veterans haven't been able to afford it and keep up with their, their dental care. But it can go from building a ramp for a veteran. It can go from painting. It can go this time of year to grass cutting mm-hmm. where veterans are not able to do these things. So it's non-medical other than dental, non-medical needs of most of the veterans and working with uh, a lot of employers to provide employment opportunities for veterans. Um, but to create those things to really satisfy the needs of veterans so it doesn't create stress on the veterans, and now it's beyond epilepsy. Now it can result in the suicide. You just tried to treat the whole body of the veteran, and this is a way to do that. Everything you do with that, and you're also involved with uh, the Armed Forces Day Parade and reefs across America. Yeah, um, and next year is going to be the 75th year. We're already uh, working with Chuck Fleischman to get General Brown in, the chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff. We're also trying to get the chiefs of uh, each branch of the service in here for the 75th next year. Isn't Chattanooga the longest-running armed forces? It is. It's the longest continuous-running armed forces parade in the country. It just reinforces the label of the most patriotic city in the world. And then reached across Chattanooga, and I created that name, and then I did a 501c3 in 2017 for reached across Chattanooga. And the reason was is to uh, let people know that if they donate to reached across Chattanooga, the reef is going to stay right here at Chattanooga National Cemetery versus if it goes to Reef across America, yes, it may end up here, but it may not end up here. But if you donate to Reef Across Chattanooga, then the reef will uh, stay here. And then the additional step that I'm doing this year is to reach out to local nurseries and to uh, purchase the reefs locally. So it's all within Chattanooga of where the $10, and that's my price point. And the reason it's that price point is because more people can afford it. Yeah. And everyone knows someone that is laid to rest at Chattanooga National Cemetery. There'll be, by the end of this year, there'll be uh, 49,000 veterans laid to rest there. And our mission, and we've led the nation through Reefs Across America, is to uh, place a reef on every one of those graves. And then I don't have to worry about grave specifics or anything like that because we've 100% covered the cemetery. Community service is obviously very important to you. You're very involved with not just the veterans and epilepsy, but all around the city, you're very involved. But you have a full-time job. You're the president and CEO of Friends of the Festival, and you just came off, and we're recording this a week after uh, Riverbend, but you just came off of uh, the new revamped Riverbend. 
talk about how you got involved with Riverbend, where it was and where it is today and where you see it going. You know, um, with Riverbend, I mentioned about the association with CHIP and uh, how we did the PGA Tour and then how that agreement was not renewed. But Chip asked me if I would stay on and help with sponsorships with um, Friends of the Festival and uh, Riverbend in particular. And I said, well, sure, I'd be glad to. We can keep the same arrangement where uh, epilepsy will benefit part of a salary that was paid. If we continue that relationship and the Epilepsy Foundation, Chip said, sure. So that's how I became involved with Riverbend Friends of the Festival. It's migrated over from the days with the nationwide tour into uh, Riverbend itself. And then that just continued to grow. And then I uh, did have to uh, need to leave to devote attention to Riverbend, the Epilepsy Foundation. But it was in a totally different situation. It was very sound. You left it better than you found it, I'm sure. I did. They were financially very sound. So I then devoted full-time to uh, the uh, Friends of the Festival and sponsorships and did that for a number of years till um, Chip decided to uh, move in a different business direction. He had an opportunity. It was great for him, and he's been very successful at it. And then the board came to me and asked if I would take over as executive director, and that was in October of uh, 2019. So I continued to do sponsorships, though, as well as um, directing the staff of 10 at that time. And you took over with some big challenges with COVID on the horizon. It's exactly what happened. March of 2020, COVID hit. That just everything, as we all know, just came to a stop. And that stop, including refunding to everyone that had purchased a uh, wristband to uh, Riverbend for 2020, Several reasons for doing that. The primary reason was they bought it to see certain artists. Well, I could not guarantee them that that artist, whenever Riverbend would resume, if that artist was going to be playing Riverbend, I couldn't guarantee that I would be able to fulfill that. So I felt the right thing to do was to return, and we uh, we returned every dollar that or every wristband that had uh, been purchased. And of course, COVID continued. We went through, like everyone else, the PPP program, the first issue of the PPP, and the next insurance of PPP. And you basically kick the can down the road as far as you can to keep your business doors open. And then you have to start looking deep into your staffing, your business model. And the business model had to change because we were struggling with keeping the business doors open. And so the business model changed, and we had to sell the assets that we had accumulated for the number of years, including the property over on Manufacturers Road, just to be able to go and to produce another Riverbend Festival, because that was the ultimate direction. It did involve staff changes as well, so some very tough decisions had been made. What years did uh, Riverbend not happen, 2020 and 2021? That's correct. So there was no money coming in. There was zero money coming in. Because it's all based on whatever the festival brings in that year. That's right. And you've had a lot of hurdles in that, but it brought it back with a successful 2023, obviously. You know, and it changed the business model going from an eight-day festival to uh, we were looking at 2020 having a four-day festival coming to uh, now a three-day festival. Because of the impact of COVID, of a number of people coming to Riverbend, 
versus the high number it had been in previous years, we had to reduce that number substantially. And that's where we came up with the limits of 15,000 on general admission. A couple more questions for you. One is, through your career, what's the one thing that you go, you know what, that was the most valuable thing that happened to me and what you learned from the most? You know, gosh, Micah, there's so many things. I think um, there's a lot of ways that you can give people opportunities. And I think just uh, being afforded the opportunities that I've had in my life, never to forget that, and always give people the opportunity to excel, to uh, grow, and not to be a barrier, but to move out of the way and be a coach to them, be there for them if they need you, but to empower those people to move forward and, and make decisions. And you give them a project, and you let them manage that project, but you give them that opportunity. Would it be fair to paraphrase that and say, and trust them until you can't? That's exactly right. And uh, just put the trust in people, just like trust was put into me, to do the things that I did. And certainly there have been just uh, highlights uh, within my career. I've been married to Carol for uh, 54 years, and that's certainly a highlight. Well, and part of that highlight, you were named National Father of the Year, too. Well, it was, and that was uh, an honor, uh, especially whenever you're associated with Lou Holtz, and he's a heck, <laughs> played golf with him uh, several times, Skip, his son as well. I bet that uh, he was, was fun. at uh, University of South Carolina, Gamecock coach, and loved Myrtle Beach, would come down and get calls from him. We got several memorabilia items. And he was just a wonderful, wonderful. And Bobby Richardson, too, uh, the New York Yankees. Yep. Uh, I just uh, felt very fortunate for that group of people to have selected me to fit into that honor. category. The last question I ask everyone, what would you tell your 25-year-old self is important for a happy life? Gosh, I think uh, for me, balance in life has been very, very important to not only uh, take out of life, but to give back in life as a way to show appreciation to the many Many things that people have done for you is to continue that by giving back and giving others opportunity and doing it in a give back role. I think you're the epitome of that, Mickey. You're a guy that I've been fortunate to know you a little bit more than a decade, and all I ever see you doing is giving back. Well, it's it's nice to be in position to do that, and it's not to have a wife that's there to support you and be in with that. And you know, I try to always remember the spouse, the family, because without their support, and especially when you're in a military situation and you have a mission and you're in the war like it was in Vietnam, and just the ability to focus on your mission and to do your job knowing that they're taking care of things back at your home and all, that that just relieves that stress. Took those worries off your plate. It does, and it doesn't become a, a focus of I mean, you. You focus right on your mission. Mickey, this has been a great conversation. I appreciate you coming and having coffee with me. I always enjoy my time with you. You are Mr. Chattanooga. Well, Mike, thank you. It's just nice to be back home. It's nice to be back in a position to give back, and we'll just see how many more years this continues. Oh, if I know you, it's going to be a lot more years. Thanks for joining us, Mickey. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for listening to My Morning Cup podcast by Costa Media Advisors. If you liked this episode, please share it with a friend. I release a new episode each week, 
So be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts.